space is really big, so big that we're not sure that there is an end to it. When you look up and peer into our cosmic neighbourhood, you'll find moons, asteroids, planets and galaxies. Not to forget a few thousand satellites that we use every day and spacecrafts that have embarked on a journey into the vast expanse. And behind every satellite and spacecraft is a curious bunch of people searching to better understand our universe and our place in it. Today we're going to find out how and why you might plan a mission into space. It's a big question, but it's one we'll be attempting to get the answer to in this episode of the Curiosity Vault from the University of Birmingham. And in fact, this is what the Curiosity Vault is all about. Across six episodes, we'll be looking at how university research is helping us to answer questions and to meet some of the biggest challenges facing us today. I'm Professor Alice Roberts and today's guests are Dr Georgina Dransfield, an astrophysicist discovering planets outside our solar system, aka exoplanets, and Dr Leah Alconcel, a space engineer who's worked on the spacecrafts used for the Cassini mission to Saturn, as well as the more recent cluster and juice missions, which we'll be learning more about. Uh, George, I want to start with a what I think is a very simple question, but I imagine it might be quite complicated. How big is our solar system? Um, <laughs> so, I mean, it depends really where you want to say the edge of the solar system is, which yeah. is kind of like up for debate. Um, when we talk about like sizes of planetary systems, metres, miles, kilometres, they've just become useless, right? So we try and scale it in terms of the distance between the sun and the earth, which is, it's about like 150 million kilometres, but we, we conveniently call it one astronomical unit. Okay. Um, the furthest out planet in the solar system is Neptune, and that's 30 astronomical units, so 30 times distance between sun and earth. Some people say at the edge of the solar system would be kind of like around where the Kuiper belt is, which is like this area of stuff just beyond Pluto. And that's like a hundred-ish astronomical units. But then yeah. some people like to think about the Oort cloud, which is this kind of like this maybe exists three-dimensional area around the solar system at about like 10,000-ish astronomical units. But oh, we, huge. But we don't know if it's there or not. Like, you know, it's kind of like a theoretical like area where there are maybe comets um, and maybe not. I like to think of the Kuiper Belt, for me, as kind of like, you know, the more defined edge. Yeah. But, um, but it's maybe bigger. So the Kuiper Belt, I just want to try and get this in my head and I'm trying to think of it on a on a metre ruler now. Yeah. So I'm going to make those astronomical units into centimetres. So yeah. our... Solar system to the outermost planet is 30 centimetres? Yeah, so, yeah units. exactly, up to uh, Neptune. And then to the edge of the Kuiper belt, which is full of asteroids, is it? So it's it's full of junk, it's full junk. of debris. Yeah. And so like there's there's a couple of dwarf planets there. We refer to a lot of this stuff, including the Kuiper belt, as trans-Neptunian objects, as stuff beyond Neptune, yeah. including Pluto, the other dwarf planet. Yes, it's no longer... Is it... Uh, can we call it a planet? Pluto, planet or not? Dwarf planet. And, and by the time we get to the edge of that Kuiper belt, then that's a... Did you say 100? 100, 100 units? yeah. So we're at the end of our metre rule. Yeah. And then potentially we've got something which goes a lot further than that, with yeah. the mysterious home of the comets. Yeah. Yeah. So now we know how big our solar system is, and as far as I'm concerned, it's a, it's a metre long 
but at a much vaster scale. Uh, Leah, how much of that have we explored? Uh, very little and not very well, I think is probably the answer that pretty much anyone who works in space science or engineering is the answer they'd give you. We know bits of it extremely well. So, for example, there have been a number of missions to Mars. We know quite a lot about our neighbour and about the surface of it, about its composition and its history. But then there are other planets in the solar system. Just this is, So this is just looking at the planets, not talking about any of the other stuff in between. Mm. There's other planets in the solar system about which we know very little. So the Cassini mission, which I worked on, is still the only spacecraft ever to have orbited Saturn. And it didn't land on anything. And it did ha- carry a lander, which survived for about nine hours on the surface of Titan. Right. Uh, it was battery powered. And so it had basically one shot and that was it. And that's the only only moon of Saturn that we've had a, a craft land on, and Saturn has quite a lot of moons, <laughs> as does Jupiter. So whether you're talking about the planets, whether you're talking about the moons, whether you're talking about the space in between the planets, we don't know a lot. Yeah. Despite having yeah. many telescopes looking up into the sky and everything, we, ju- we just don't know very much about our solar system yet. So is Mars the only other planet that we've landed on? We've landed on Venus. What's it like on Venus? Uh, Very hot. Very, very hot. The surface of Venus is over 900 degrees Celsius. And the Russian spacecraft that landed on it in the 1970s melted within a couple of hours. Understandable. (laughs) But did it manage to send back useful information before it melted? Yes, yes, it did. Uh, The famous photo, all the famous photographs of uh, the surface of Venus are from those spacecraft. And we haven't done anything since then, really. How many rovers have gone to Mars? Well, NASA sent uh, Spirit and Opportunity and Curiosity and Perseverance. Those are the most famous ones. Yeah, Um, yeah. I believe other space agencies have tried or are going to try in the near future. But those are the ones that are the most well-known. I mean, it's a a massive challenge to think about sending these remote vehicles and spacecraft to places that we can't get to at the moment. What's the balance between planning a mission like that versus using earthbound instruments? Because obviously we're still using Mm. um, telescopes. What can we tell by using these, these spacecraft that we can't tell just by looking from Earth? A lot of that has to do with instrument resolution and our capability of measuring things from the ground because everything is so far away. And I think, actually, this is a good point where I can bring up my objects. I was going to ask you about this because there's a potato-like <laughs> yeah. object on the table in front of you. What is it? So the potato-like object is a 3D printed model of a comet called 67P churyumov gerasimenko And it is the chosen target for a spacecraft that was called Rosetta. And before Rosetta visited the comet and it went into orbit around the comet, this was the best telescope image that had been taken of the comet. And it just looks completely smooth and it's, yeah. it's a sort of oblong shape, slightly irregular oblong shape. And that's the best we could do from the ground. Yeah. Um, so the point of, of going to actually sending spacecraft out into the solar system to investigate objects is not just to take better pictures of them, but to actually understand how dynamic they are. So this is a snapshot. We can't really see anything uh, on the surface or what's happening on the mm. surface. Once Rosetta had visited, that's my second object, um, we had a much better picture of the surface. The rubber duck now is the picture of the it surface. But you can like see how, how craggy it is and how, how yeah. much interesting stuff is going on on the surface. And this will be, you know, covered in ice, but there will also be rocks protruding out. And as this approaches the sun, um, it becomes extremely active. So the, the, the water vapor starts coming off of the surface of the comet. And when you send a probe, not only can you take the images that let you see these processes happening, you can make lots of other different types of measurements. So you can use things like 
like a mass spectrometer to determine what kind of materials are coming off of the surface. Yeah. You can use instruments to measure electric and magnetic fields to understand how those particles are getting charged up and interacting with the solar wind, so the, the particles that come from the sun. And that tells us more and more about how the solar system was formed and how objects like this came together to basically to form to form the planets and to form the moons. How big is the real thing? I presume this is a scale <laughs> so model. It, yes, it is a scale model. It's about four kilometres across. Right. The difference in the resolution there is extraordinary. It's a really good way of describing why it's useful to send spacecraft to take a closer look at yeah. objects in space. What about other things that we might find on the surface of structures in the solar system? So what about the possibility of finding life, George? How, have we found any evidence of or traces of life? We haven't yet, but... One of the missions that's currently we're very excited about is JUICE that's going to be exploring the icy moons of Jupiter. And one of the hopes that we have is that one day we might be able to drill into Europa and see what's under that kind of the surface ice, because we think that there's liquid oceans under that surface ice. Now, it's very far away, so it's quite it's quite cold there. However, there's something interesting going on with the moons of Jupiter, especially the four main moons of Jupiter, known as the Galilean satellites, where they're in this kind of interesting orbital configuration where, for example, as one goes around once, another one goes around exactly twice, and then another one goes around exactly three times. So they kind of frequently meet and they give each other gravitational kicks. And that causes like weird deformation of the surfaces and it causes heating. So that liquid ocean could have enough heat in it that there could be biological activity going on in there. And if we think, for example, of like a, an, a similar thing on Earth, those lakes in Antarctica, Lake Vostok, for example, and they, they found kind of like microbial activity in those ice cores that they drilled. And this is like you know, very, very cold water that had not been in touch with the outside world for millions of years. But there were microbes there that yeah. kind of like evolved completely independently of everything else going on elsewhere. So it is possible that somewhere like that, there could be microbial activity. I mean, in terms of a consensus of opinion, and it, it is speculative, um, what do most people in the field think about the likelihood of finding life on other planets? I mean, is it thought that it's highly likely that there will be life? I mean, I think that given how much time, money and, you know, effort is going into this, I think that at least in the exoplanet community, we do believe there is life out there because there's nothing special about Earth, right? So it's special to us, it's our home, but the conditions, the, the physics, the science that led to life happening, there's, there's nothing unique about this place and time. So if those conditions could arise here, then there's no reason why those conditions couldn't arise somewhere else. And, you know, we now know that planets around stars are actually the norm and there's billions of stars in our galaxy, yeah. meaning that there's billions of planets in the galaxy. And so I think that the likelihood of there being life, maybe not life like ours or complex life even, maybe not even life that's developed astrophysicists to, you know, send up probes and stuff. But the, the chances of there being life, I think, is quite high. Yeah. Um, the chances of us finding life, that's a whole other thing. You know, the issue with biomarkers is that 
we know a lot of biomarkers, like oxygen is a biomarker, methane, carbon dioxide, but they all have what we call false positives, i.e. they can be produced by non-life as well. Like yeah. volcanoes famously are terrible for CO2. <laughs> uh, you know. So have you found like people breathing or have you found volcanic activity? So yeah, it's the idea is that we're trying really hard to find biomarkers that have no false positives, yeah. that, that we can only be produced by biological activity. And, and that is the challenge. And, you know, it's thought that phosphine might be one of those. But, you know, we still don't know everything about Earth. So therefore, how can we know everything about how these gases are going to behave on other planets? Yes, because presumably this kind of prediction depends on knowing a lot about biology here. Yeah. And, you know, the way you're talking about the possibility of those bacteria living very, very deep um, under ice, for instance, that depends on microbiology here on Earth and understanding that actually we have these extremophile bacteria. Yeah. And that science itself has advanced a lot over the last few decades so that we're, we're sort of now aware that there are life forms in very unusual places on this planet that we wouldn't like to live in. Dinococcus radiodurans. That's one of my favourites. What is Dinococcus radiodurans? <laughs> now you've said it. Um, that's, that's one of the uh, microbes that was discovered in the water that's used to cool nuclear reactors. Really? Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah. Uh, something lives there? Yeah, yes. Well, not in the reactors themselves, but in the, in the cooling in the, water. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They can survive in there. Nice. Yeah. It's astonishing, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, it's life, such a good name as well. Life finds a way. It's brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> now, I want to talk to you a little bit about how you start from scratch designing a mission, how you might plan the route, how you might think about how to design the craft. And there are obviously huge teams involved with this. But if we could start with the craft, I mean, how, where do you start? Well, the, the design of the spacecraft is driven by the objectives of the mission, at least for science. And so scientists tend to worry a little bit less about what the craft is going to look like and a lot more about what they want to discover and what yeah. they want to achieve with it than you might imagine at the start of planning a mission. So it's not about aesthetics? No. No, not at all. <laughs> functionality, very much about functionality, yeah. And there's, there's, there's a limited number of materials and tested systems for space. And space engineering is famously extremely conservative. We like things that have already worked. Yes. Um, so <laughs> it's, it's expensive to send like experimental to, yes, things up. Yes. Yeah. Um, so most systems will be a somewhat incremental variant of something that has been sent before. And what about the route then? I mean, what determines how the route is planned? Oh, so it depends what we want to do. So, I mean... I'm big on discovering new planets. So you'd want to make sure that if we're going out of the solar system in a theoretical mission, then um, we'd want to go to an area that has maybe lots of small stars because we know that small stars host more small rocky planets than bigger stars. So of what we found so far, the smallest planets, kind of like the ones more like Earth-sized um, or somewhere between Earth and Neptune, for example, Neptune is about four times the size of Earth. Those ones are hosted 
affected really, really often by smaller stars. So um, we're thinking maybe things about a fifth the size of the sun and they're cooler as well. Um, and because they have smaller temperatures and smaller sizes, you can have habitable planets much closer to the star, which is really convenient. So we'd want to go to an area of the galaxy where there's like a high density of these kinds of stars. Yeah, just earthy and close to the star, but the star is, you know, not too wild. So that's one of the problems actually with these stars. They flare a bit. What exactly is a flare? So a flare is when there's like a bunch of energy and a little bit of material ejected from the surface of the star. And we detect this if we're kind of looking at the brightness of the star over time, we detect this as suddenly a huge increase in brightness. It shoots up immediately and then it decays away exponentially. So it's just a very, very big increase in energy as some energy and material is ejected from the star's surface. So we don't really know if they could actually be habitable because they might just be constantly like evaporating any atmosphere that tries to form. Yeah. yeah. Can you predict the flares at all or is that just a random? So they are mostly random. So stars that flare a lot, you can kind of work out an average flare rate. But some of them, especially like the older ones, it's going to be more random, but they do occasionally just send out, you know, a random huge flare. Mm. Um, So, you know, we talk about these ones being like the most habitable ones, we think. But Mm. then flaring could be an issue. But then again, we also think that flaring could be a double-edged sword because while it could, you know, destroy an atmosphere that's trying to form, it could also provide that catalyzing energy for, like, the start of biological activity. But, yeah, I'd be terrified of, like actually finding out that maybe all of the stars that we found planets around and we thought they could be like Earth, just finding out that no, they're all just being destroyed all the time. Just being regularly mm. fried by yeah. flares. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this sounds very theoretical because we're only in the business at the moment of exploring our own solar system yeah. and you're talking about reaching out and looking for other solar systems. How far off is that, do you think? Ooh, so... The problem is that, like, we have a propulsion problem because even, like, the closest stars to us, they are, you know, several light years away. So if we travelled at the speed of light, it would take us years to get there. Mm. And we are not even close to the speed of light. We'd need to work out faster than light speed travel or wormholes. Well, there's a challenge for both of you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) Let's draw ourselves back to the present, the reality that we can grasp at the moment then. And Leah, you've mentioned a couple of missions that you've been involved with, Cassini, but also, also JUICE as well. Can you tell us a little bit more about that particular mission? So JUICE was launched very recently and... I've been working on it since 2010 when it was originally conceived as a multi-spacecraft mission. It was going to be called EJSM Laplace. So it was supposed to explore uh, multiple Galilean moons and include potentially a lander and three different spacecraft. And what we ended up with was just one orbital spacecraft, which is going to go into orbit in the Jovian system. And it will end the mission by going into circular orbits around Ganymede. Um, so Ganymede is is like Europa. It's got an ice crust and it's got a subsurface ocean, but it's a little bit further away from Jupiter. So the radiation environment is not quite as harsh as it is around Europa, um, which makes designing the spacecraft 
slightly easier, yeah. <laughs> I won't say easy, <laughs> but slightly easier than designing a spacecraft to orbit Europa. Ganymede, so in addition to having the subsurface ocean, Ganymede also has, it is thought, it, it has an intrinsic magnetic field. And I'm a big fan of magnetic fields. So my first job in space was as the archive engineer for the cluster mission, which is still in orbit around the Earth, an archive engineer for the magnetometer instrument, which measures the magnetic field to a very high degree of precision. And bodies that have an intrinsic magnetic field are thought to have better conditions potentially for harboring the development of life. Why um, is that? It affords some protection from solar radiation. Right, okay. Um, and from the plasma that comes off the sun, basically. And so Ganymede, by having an intrinsic magnetic field, is also protected from Jupiter as well as from the sun. And Why so that, does it need to be protected from Jupiter? What's Jupiter going to do to it? Uh, it's just Jupiter's radiation environment is, is really harsh. But because Ganymede has a rocky core and an ice crust, and it experiences the tidal forcing that George talked about, which separates the ice crust from the rocky core, forms a liquid layer. So the liquid layer is protected not only from the cold, but is also protected from Jupiter's radiation belts. Yeah, yeah. So that having that long-term stable environment is one of the things that makes it really a really interesting target for the JUICE mission. Um, so JUICE launched in April. It's going to take about eight years to get to Jupiter. <laughs> Again, that problem with nowhere near faster than light travel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Jupiter's still within our solar system and it takes us eight years to get there. And it will go into orbit around Jupiter and it will also make some flybys of both of Callisto, Europa and Ganymede. So three of the three of the Galilean moons. So hopefully what we'll learn why doing circular orbits around Ganymede is a little bit more about the internal structure of Ganymede, how deep the ice crust is, potentially how deep that liquid ocean is. Does it have a dynamic core that's producing this magnetic field, which means you know, lots of swirly liquid metal around going around in the middle of the, of the planet the same way it does in Earth? Yeah. Sorry, in the middle of the moon in the same way around it does in Earth. And, you know, therefore potentially... Could we have the conditions there that would harbor life? Yeah. Would most gas giants potentially have moons like this if we discover lots of gas giants? Because they're much bigger than Earth-like planets. So many more gas giants have been discovered around other stars than Earth-like planets have been discovered around other stars. But if these gas giants presumably have lots of moons, then they may also have moons that have subsurface oceans where there could be conditions for life to develop. But you're going to have to wait yes. eight years, <laughs> eight years yes. to start getting any yes. data back. Yeah. Are you interacting with it on the way? I mean, presumably you're checking up on it. Yes. Yeah. But there's a lot of waiting to do. Is there's that, is a that lot of just waiting. the nature of this type of science? Yes. Yeah. If you want to explore anything in the outer solar system, yes, you have to be very patient. Yeah. So immediately after launch is exciting because there's commissioning and there's deployment of booms and solar panels and things like that. And yeah. Testing, testing yeah. the instruments to make sure they work. Then there's always a couple of flybys of the inner solar system. So passing by the inner planets to pick up speed, basically, to get you out to the outer planets a little bit more quickly. And Say slingshotting. Slingshotting, yes. Rain yeah, pretty much. Yeah. yeah. So Earth, I think it's Earth, Venus, Earth, Earth for Juice's trajectory right. out to Jupiter. And then there's just a long wait until you get to, to Jupiter. And yes, they're in communication with the spacecraft, you know, to do daily checks and everything. But there's not, not a lot happening yeah. until you actually arrive. I want to think about 
the journeys that you've been on, we've been talking about these journeys to Jupiter and beyond the edge of our solar system. But George, how did how did you start to get interested in, in space? I was I was a natural born nerd. I grew up in Uruguay, South America, and in Uruguay in state school, the national curriculum has in your fourth year of secondary school, you get to finally drop geography, which is brilliant because I failed it three years in a row, and you do compulsory astronomy instead. And everyone always dreads this and hates astronomy so much and I just loved it not just the relief of not doing geography but just just learning astronomy I thought it was so cool I really enjoyed it and then from then on like after I moved to England I kind of carried on thinking about it and then eventually I ended up yeah going and doing my undergrad in in astro and then I kind of left it for a bit and I, I trained as a physics teacher and so I was a secondary school physics teacher for six years and then I just got really jealous of my kids because they kept like going off to do really cool things at uni and like and I would do like the UK space design competition with them and I would do like the Astro Olympiad with them and we would just do all these really cool things I started running an exoplanets club for my year sevens and I just got so jealous that they were just doing all these cool things and it's like I, I just want to go back and do stuff too so I I ended up like doing the masters by research here part time while teaching, and then I got offered the place for PhD. So, yeah. so I quit teaching to come back and be a student myself again. But it's been awesome. I've, I've got to do such cool things and travel to the wildest places I never thought I'd see. So much of what you're saying there really kind of resonates with me. But I think the main thing is that you know talking to anybody who's involved in research, it feels like a privilege to be indulging your own curiosity and passion for a subject, but also doing something where you know that you're driving forward the bounds of human knowledge. I mean, it's it's an incredible area to be working in, isn't mm. it? Um, Leah, how did, how did you get um, drawn into this whole area? D- drawn into space. Um, so, actually... Sucked into space. Of, yes, into space. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. So, um, I don't have a space background originally in education. I did my first degree in chemistry and I did my PhD in chemical dynamics. So in a basement with a laser in a big vacuum chamber, looking at the dynamics of chemical reactions, very fast dynamics of chemical reactions. So the way I got drawn into space was actually after I finished my PhD and I went and did a postdoc and I did my postdoc at the Jet Propulsion Lab at NASA and everybody assumes that when you say that oh, you must have done space. I did not. <laughs> There's a very small part of the Jet Propulsion Lab that does earth science. And so I was in the earth sciences division. Um, the, the thing about the Jet Propulsion Lab campus though is that it's really small and it has one great big canteen which everybody goes to. Yeah. And so I went to the canteen most days for lunch and I ended up meeting Mission operation engineers, <laughs> mechanical engineers, people who are working on the um, the original um, set of Mars rovers. Uh, so I'm showing my age now. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and, and I got to be friends with them. Oh, come and see my lab and all this sort of thing. And, and we got to the end of my postdoc because they're all short-term contracts. And I kind of went, do I want to keep being in the basement all the time or would I rather potentially be involved with building spacecraft and so I started looking for jobs and I uh, got the one being the archive engineer on cluster yeah and uh, and it kind of went from there so that's how I got into that's how I got into space a little bit so late your on. background was it was you could translate that into uh, working on 
on spacecraft yes, in particular. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So for, for me, that was the real visceral lesson about transferable skills. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because I remember, I distinctly remember this job interview. They showed me some data and said, what do you think this is? And I said, oh, well, that's the, the spacecraft spin, I'm pretty sure. It's, it's, it's basically, it's the same mathematical concepts in one field as it is in the other. So I guess it was me being able to just sort of make that connection on my own that got yeah. me the job. And, and you it haven't was a looked lot back? I haven't looked back, no, no. And I think that's another thing which is coming across from talking to both of you. Mm that this is actually fun. Yeah, it's wicked yeah. fun. It's yeah. so fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm hoping that lots of pupils at school will, will listen to this podcast and learn about some of the excitement of this particular area of science from, from the two of you. I want to end up by asking you to polish up your crystal balls. You have actually bought something which looks like crystal balls. Okay, before we get onto the crystal ball gazing, what what is that object, George? This is this is a little lamp and it's like it's a it's it's a nice little round lamp. And the reason I brought it is because I look for planets, right? So I, I spend my time searching for brand new planets outside the solar system. But the planets are really, really small and far away and compared and they don't give off any light. So compared with the star that they're going around we cannot see the planets like we have no chance we never see the planets so you're looking for planets that you can't see exactly so we look at the star instead so what we do is we look at the starlight and we look for the effect the planet has on the starlight and in particular i use a method where we look at the shadow that the planet casts on the star as it goes around it so like if you imagine that this is a star and you've got a planet kind of just going around every time it passes in front of it along our line of sight it casts a small shadow so that's a really kind of nice visual way of thinking of what it is that we do and I particularly like this one because like you can turn it off and on again and it comes up different colours um, so before it was red and now it's blue and there are blue stars that are much much hotter than red stars we've not yet found planets around blue stars but like the idea of kind of different colour stars and that tells us something about the temperature of the star the environment of the star whether or not we can find planets around it and stuff so that's what I do I search for shadows cast by planets on stars that's amazing <laughs> I mean does that method come from our own solar system for instance looking at venus yeah, traveling in yeah, front exactly. of the sun that yeah. kind of so thing it's called the transit like that event when it goes in front of the star and it blocks off a little bit of starlight is called the transit and so we've been observing transits inside the solar system forever you know as you say the transits of venus across the sun but like more broadly it's the idea of like an eclipse right like a smaller thing going in front of a bigger thing and we've been looking at eclipses for stars well double stars called binaries we've been looking at eclipsing stars also for like a really long time so this method for the transit method of finding planets it was just about getting bigger and better telescopes so that we could detect these tiny dips because like what we're looking for is a little dip in light mm. um, and so we had to get bigger and better telescopes with bigger and better cameras to be able to detect these teeny tiny dips of light it's a method that's now quite successful over three quarters of all exoplanets have been discovered using this method and we know of over five thousand planets so you know it's going well so now i am going to ask you to do the crystal ball gazing. Yeah. Leah, what's next in terms of big discoveries, in terms of missions? What are you hoping to do in the next, say, 10 years? What would you like to see? Um, I'd, I'd like to see us go to some of the planets that haven't been visited yet. And obviously, this is another exercise in patience, even if a, a mission, say, to Neptune, um, Neptune, yes, Neptune, <laughs> Neptune gets selected by NASA or ESA or another space agency in the next 10 years. To go from the point of selection to the point of actually 
launching something. I mean, for Juice, it took 13 years. So you're looking at an additional mm. 13 years on top of that. Then the transit time. So time to Jupiter. And this is by minimizing the transit time to Jupiter, by just carefully designing the trajectory so it doesn't take too long, mm. is eight years. To Neptune, it's a bit longer. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, at this point, you're looking at 30-something 30, 30 years in the future where really? you might get an orbital spacecraft around Neptune. But, uh, you know, I think for the sake of expanding our knowledge of the solar system and potentially tying into George's work on understanding exoplanets and, and how to detect them and what sort of signatures we might be looking for, what features mm. we might want to find on, on exoplanets and just broadening our view of the galaxy, I think that would be incredible. I think yeah. I'd love to see that happen. Neptune I next. <laughs> I, I, I so want that to happen. Like, we've we've learned that like planets it, with sizes between Earth and Neptune are the most common planets in the galaxy. It's like they it is the most common outcome of planet formation to have those kinds of planets inside a hundred days away from the star. We don't have anything like it in the solar system, and we know so little about Neptune. So we're discovering all these Neptune-like planets, mini Neptunes, and we know nothing about our own Neptune. Yeah. So just like learning about our Neptune would be super handy, so that we can then say something about like whether these other Neptunes that we're finding are really anything like Neptune at all. So we just don't know anything about Neptune. No, it's just we just don't know anything about our solar system, really. Like, <laughs> yeah. We want so to know ignorant. more about Neptune. Yeah. Well, I, hope, I hope you do. I hope you're successful. I look forward to um, hearing um, all the answers in 30 years' time. Yeah. Maybe a bit earlier. Maybe it'll yeah. get quicker. Yeah. 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 Thank you very much indeed. I've learned a lot. I found it absolutely fascinating. It's made me want to go back and study astronomy, explore the solar system more. I think it's absolutely wonderful what you're doing. Thank you very much. So that is it for this week. Thank you very much to Dr George Dransfield and Dr Leah Alconcel for joining me. In our next episode, we'll be telling many tales as we explore the question, how powerful is storytelling? I'm Alice Roberts, and The Curiosity Vault is a fresh air production for the University of Birmingham. The producers are Harriet Wells and Izzy Clark. If you want to find out more about the amazing research at the University of Birmingham and about how you can be part of the journey, there's a link in the show notes. And remember to follow or subscribe now for free wherever you get your podcasts so you will never miss an episode. 